Hello, and welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am the priest. My name is Carl Stevens. And I am the rabbi, Daniel Bogard. And uh, today we're just doing an introduction of what this is all about. The name of this episode is The Oven of Acne. Um But the first thing it's all about is the fact that the Diocese of Southern Ohio is reading the Exodus narrative together throughout the course of this year. And we are very fortunate that Daniel has joined the project as our rabbi in residence, thanks in large part to the uh, generosity of Christ Church Cathedral in Cincinnati. Um, Daniel, uh, do you want to say a little bit about what you'll be doing as a rabbi in residence? So I, I'm really excited for this uh, this project. Uh, I'll be involved in the various conventions that happen this year, and uh, uh, Carl and I will be doing uh, this podcast every week or so. Uh, so there, there's going to be this project of reading uh, the entirety of Exodus, as I understand it, uh, throughout the diocese. And so I think our hope with this podcast is that we can offer a different perspective and a different approach to text. Uh, so those of you who are reading along at home uh, can follow along with the podcast as well. Yep. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, we're going to start out today by um, introducing Hrvut. Uh, you say it. <laughs> uh, I, so Hrvut is a Jewish approach to text. Uh, and the real idea is that text should be something you argue over. Uh, there's this con- concept in Judaism that there there are arguments that are for the sake of heaven and there are arguments that are not for the sake of heaven. Uh, and what we mean by that is there are arguments whose purpose uh, is to expand our truth and expand our understanding and to make all of us grow. And there are arguments that are about winning. Uh, wow. And so an argument for the sake of heaven isn't one that's for the sake of winning. It's for the sake of growth, uh, personal growth, human growth, all these sorts of things. So Chavrut is a style where uh, at least two people sit across from each other with a text uh, with the goal that as we argue, uh, as we discuss, as we parse apart the text, uh, things can emerge between us that would not exist uh, or wouldn't emerge from the text if it was just me reading by myself. Does that make sense? It not only makes sense, it's entirely beautiful. I am... you know, this. I think for contemporary Christianity, this is a big question. Like we we've had this uh, movement towards biblical literalism, which is, uh, in my mind, very much about argument for the sake of winning. And you can have some sympathy for it. You can you can have sympathy for people who think their task in life is to get it right, um, and. It, you know, they, they have an understanding, I think, of what it means to get it right, which is based really on an enlightenment understanding of knowledge that mm, mm. Um, you can kind of discover the truth with a capital T about something and, and then hold on to it and build from it. Um, but an argument for the sake of heaven uh, kind of undoes all that. It says we can be a little unstable, we can be a little bit freer, and it's nice that to me, it's about freedom, given that we are talking about Exodus, uh, a story of human freedom. Um, we can be a little bit freer in the way we talk about and the way we think about texts, uh, and we don't have to be afraid because uh, this is actually the way that God works in the text itself, isn't it? I mean, do, what do you think, Daniel? Is, is God in the text of Exodus and other pieces of scripture um, willing to enter into these arguments for the sake of heaven. I, you know, it's funny. We uh, um, That's not the sort of language we use in the Jewish world, but okay. I, I like that. You know, we tend to shy away oftentimes from God language, at least American Jews do. Um, huh. Maybe we'll explore that in a, a different podcast at some point. Uh, but, you know, Jews have never done theology. It's just not a part of our tradition. Uh, in the sense that a theology is sort of an all-encompassing uh, attempt to create a cohesive narrative or a cohesive understanding of the world in the same way that scientists might have a cosmology which describes sort of the, the origins of the universe and how it all emerged. Jews have never had that. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it comes with its problems, certainly, in that, you know, 
we don't have one answer to any question. Uh, but in our postmodern world where all of a sudden the idea of attainable capital T truth seems less attainable, uh, not having a theology or not having one theology, uh, maybe I should say, uh, at least to me has, has some real resonance that there's not one answer and we don't have to, the text doesn't need to be cohesive. It doesn't matter that, you know, in, in Genesis one, the order of creation is different than in Genesis two, each can have their own truth. Each can have their own, uh, value without the need for one to be right and one to be wrong. Hmm. Yeah. I think for Christians, uh, Theology has always mattered, and we've always tried to build these systems that are concrete and coherent. I mean, we call it systematic theology. So from the very beginning, well, not from the very beginning, but from uh, the 4th century onward, there's been this vested interest in getting it right, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. getting salvation history right, understanding who Christ was and the redemptive work of God. Um, so that's going to be an important difference in in these two worldviews that we're bringing together in this discussion. And I'm really excited to know uh, and learn from uh, from you and from Judaism, particularly at this moment when uh, the church is no longer as prominent as it once was. One way to say this is that Christendom is coming to an end. And to my mind, and I'm sure there are people who disagree with this, but to my mind, the whole purpose of systematic theology, the whole reason to get things right, was so that the faith could serve empire better in a more coherent way. And as we become less and less a faith of empire, uh, one open question is, how much do we need uh, systematics at this point? Huh. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, that's nice. That I mean, that if you're insisting on a theology at some level, what you're dealing with are power structures. Yes, you are. <laughs> uh, huh. huh. Yep. Okay, that's, but sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, returning to your actual question, you know, there is yeah. a uh, uh, there is a Jewish concept that when two people sit in front of a text and they truly argue that there is a third who is in front of them. And that is the, uh, divine presence, what we call the Shechina, the, uh, uh, the sort of mothering aspect of the divine. Wow. Um, and is that also true of three or four people sit and argue? Yes. Though, you know, sometimes three or four people, uh, the, the arguing comes out more than the, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> than, uh, than the presence yeah. of the divine or the uh, sake of heaven. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Uh, uh, the reason I ask is one of our hopes for this podcast is to bring other voices in from time to time. So maybe from time to time that there will be three instead of two, uh, as part of this discussion, but we hope that the divine will be present. Um, I, I, absolutely. And as the son of a trial lawyer, uh, you know, I always like arguments for the sake of uh, heaven, but arguments for any sake really uh, fit with my childhood. So, you know. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's get back to the question of uh, how Havruta works. Is, it, is this a particular form of studying scripture? So, I, you know, like, what do you say we actually try this? And, sure. And uh, uh, then we can sort of talk about afterwards the way that we did it, if that makes sure. sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, so I've got a text for us, and hopefully if you're listening to this, wherever you found this, there was a link that included this text. Uh, if not, I'm sure you can go to our uh, uh, website, and it'll be there. What, what is the website? Will you? It's adsobigread.org. So letter A, letter D, letter S, letter O, the word big, the word read.org. Okay. Uh, so somewhere on there, I'm sure we will have some sort of link that you can find both this podcast and uh, the text that goes with it. Sure will. Uh, okay. Uh, so what we're talking about here is really one of my favorite stories uh, really in the Jewish tradition, and it is the oven of Achnai, uh, oven of Achnai. Uh, and... It comes from the Talmud. So the, the first thing I think to say is, what is the Talmud? Is this something that you think any of our listeners or many of our listeners have some sort of background with? I doubt it. So uh, a number of years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I sat in on a class at Kenyon College um, 
on Judaism, and that was the first time I really understood it. And I was about 35 years old by that huh. point. So, so I think we better introduce it. So the, the fundamental myth of rabbinic Judaism, uh, I should say that some people don't like that word myth, uh, right? We tend to think of myth as being a story that's not true. Uh, but when you use it in an academic sense, uh, myth is any story that tells us who we are, where we came from, and how we're supposed to live our lives, what our values are. So myths don't have to make a truth claim. Uh, a myth can be uh, something that happened or didn't happen, right? The, uh, the example I like to give is that I'm not from Texas, so the Alamo is just history for me. It doesn't tell me anything about who I am. Uh, but you talk to a Texan, and God knows, right, the, the Alamo is central to their identity. Uh, remember it. I'm not exactly sure what we're supposed to remember, but you're supposed to remember something about the Alamo. Uh, and it becomes a myth for a Texan uh, because it tells them who they are. Did, did right. that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. So myths are stories that tell us who we are. Yes, Yes. Uh, so when I say that this is the central myth of rabbinic Judaism, I'm not saying it's true or not true in a historical sense. I'm just saying it's it's sort of the central story that we have. And that story is that at this moment of revelation at Sinai, when the Torah is given, the five books of Moses, uh, rabbinic Judaism says there's also an oral Torah that is given as well, an oral instruction uh, that is about how we are supposed to live our lives, right? When you read the actual text of the Torah or of the Bible, there's, there's very little on how you're supposed to live, right? These are stories. These are, uh, histories. These are, um, maybe theologies, but not a lot about how you're supposed to deal with the practicalities of neighbors and marriage and so on and so forth. Um, and so this tradition, this oral Torah is all about the practicalities of life. And we're told that it was passed from Moses to Joshua and on and on and on from rabbi to rabbi to rabbi uh, until about the year 200 uh, when it was written down. Uh, huh. And once it's written down, there's a whole process after that, but that is the Talmud. Did that make sense? It did. Um, are there things that are written down after the year 200 that that count or are they in a different category? Yeah. So t technically the way this works is, uh, so we, we need a little history here. Uh, in the year 70, 70 CE or AD, uh, mm -hmm. the Romans destroy the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, now this is a catastrophic theological event, but the destruction of the temple is also symbolic of the greater destruction that happens. I mean, we're talking about mass murder and men being carted off to slavery. We're talking about rape on a awful scale, uh, child slavery, starvation in the streets. I mean, awful, awful destruction of a civilization. And this happens again, actually in the year 135, there's another Jewish rebellion called the Bar Kochba rebellion, really sort of the last gasp of Jewish sovereignty until, uh, the 1940s. Uh, and, what happens after these destructions is there's a real fear that this tradition, which had been an oral tradition, will be lost. And so a uh, man, a rabbi named Judah the Prince, Yehuda Hanasi, uh, gathers all of the sort of greatest minds of his generation. He sits them down. This is in the north and the Galilee. Uh, and writes down everything that everyone knows about the oral Torah. This is called the Mishnah. Uh, so the Mishnah is then sent to Babylon. The Jewish world at this point is divided. About half of us are in uh, Babylon, uh, and about half of us are in uh, what we now think of as sort of the land of Israel or Palestine. Uh, and uh, in each of these areas over the next 400 years or so, there's a commentary that's built on top of the Mishnah called the Gemara. Uh, it's, I don't know, five times, ten times the length of the Mishnah itself. And when you publish those together, we call them the Talmud. Uh, to give you a sense of scale, imagine a world book encyclopedia. Yeah. And that's why you can find something called the Babylonian Talmud uh, if you just do a Google search. That's exactly. a part of the Talmud that came from ba Babylon. Exactly. And the other one is typically called the Jerusalem Talmud. Okay. Uh, even though it wasn't written in Jerusalem, it was written in the north, but, you know. Um, right. Yeah. Um, okay. Thank you. That's very that's very clarifying. Uh, so, in apology, first of all, to all of our listeners who got lost in the weeds there, um, and uh, let's jump into the text. Okay, so the text is uh, part of the Talmud. It's part of the Babylonian Talmud. 
Um, so this is part of that oral tradition, which was collected and then commented commented upon uh, in in among the Babylonian community. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So the the particular book of the Talmud that we're in is called Baba Metzia, uh, and we are on the fifty ninth page, and on the back side of that page, page B. Huh. Okay. Uh, to give you a sense of the the length of Talmud, uh, length of the Talmud, it takes me about I would say forty five minutes to an hour to read a page of Talmud. Wow! Uh, and if you read one page every day, you will finish the Talmud in seven and a half years. Okay. And um, is this a commentary on a particular text of the Torah? No, 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 no. That's not okay. what we're dealing with here. Okay, uh, so Talmud is not necessarily, it's not what we would think of as like a biblical commentary going side by side with scripture. No, the truth of it is for, uh, for the Jewish world, the Talmud really in some ways takes precedence over what we think of as the Hebrew Bible. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think people might disagree with uh, disagree with that on an emotional level. Uh, uh-huh. But to give you a sense, within the ultra orthodox world, uh, the the black hatter world of Jews, uh, men study Talmud and women study Bible. Wow. Right. <laughs> so I mean, clearly, we're dealing with a, a highly wow. patriarchal and sexist uh, uh, system. But it but it does, I think, illustrate. Uh, a relative importance between those two. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Okay, so do you want to? So if we're doing a Havruta study, um, my understanding is that we read segments at a time and then we stop to uh, to have a argument for the sake of heaven over them as we go. Is that correct? Absolutely. And just one more note here before we dig into the text that I think we're really hoping that those of you at home who are listening, who are going to be reading along with the Exodus project will find a Hevruta partner and read Exodus this way too. Yeah, that would be uh, amazing. Whether that's sort of your life partner or your neighbor or whomever that is. Uh, sure. Or in my case, your 14 year old daughter who, it works. who, whose whole world is based around argument for the sake of heaven. <laughs> <laughs> or at least argument for the sake of something. Yeah. 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 Uh, so do you want to start reading for us here? Sure. If a man made an oven out of separate coils of clay, placing one upon another, then put sand between each of the coils, such an oven, Rabbi Eliezer declared, it is not susceptible to defilement, while the sages declared it susceptible. Okay, so what what's happening here? Do you have any sense? Uh, it must be something to do with purity, right? Something to do with an oven... Uh, being kosher in some way. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, we'll talk about this through the lens of kosher. It's actually a little different than modern uh, ideas of kashrut, of uh, uh, sort of Jewish ritual eating, but there is a similarity here. So okay. th- there's this idea, uh, think Leviticus, uh, of things being ritually pure or ritually impure. And this actually comes from a section in the Talmud where that's what they're debating. They're talking about all sorts of uh, uh purity and impurity, uh, laws and ideas. Uh, but one of the concepts here is that vessels themselves. So a, uh, imagine sort of a, a clay pot when we're talking about an oven here, uh, it's a, uh, uh, almost Indian style oven, like a tandoor. Uh-huh. Uh, actually the word in Aramaic and, uh, Talmud's in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. Uh, the word in Aramaic is tanur. So you can even hear the connection between that and a tandoor in India. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, uh, these clay vessels, like a clay oven, they can acquire impurity. And if they become ritually impure, it's very problematic. You can't cook in them. You can't eat in them, so on and so forth. But there is a concept that says that if a clay vessel is broken, the broken pieces themselves cannot hold impurity. Huh. So Rebbe Eliezer here. Uh, really he's talking about a sort of technical innovation. Uh, he's saying, okay, what do you say we make an oven out of broken pieces of clay, you know, fill in the gaps with sand, uh, and then it can't become impure. It can't become defiled. But it could be defiled if it was all together. If it was a... Correct. Okay. Correct. Well, that's, 
that, do you have any sense of, sorry, do you have any sense of, of why that is? Like why a whole thing would, would be susceptible to defilement and a broken thing would not? So, you know, I think the idea here is that the broken pieces that they would be dealing with uh, would generally be considered trash pieces. Okay. Uh, right. Normally, if you've got a broken oven, what are you going to do with the broken pieces of pottery? You're going to trash them. Uh, right. There's nothing you can do with them. And the great fear, of course, is that if something has become impure, if something has a defiled state, I, I don't actually like that word defiled because I think it brings up ideas of cleanliness. And this is not about cleanliness. This is really ritual purity. Okay. Um, the if something is ritually impure, it can transfer that ritual impurity to you. Uh-huh. So at some level, I think it's just a practical decision that if broken pieces could also transfer ritual impurity, we would constantly uh, be in a state of coming into contact with uh, impurity. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, it's such a – I mean, I'm glad – we clarified what purity means here, you know, because I think like my oven breaks, my first thought is it's going out to the trash. So in my mind, it, in some ways it's already tinged with unclean, clean, uncleanliness. Um, but if we're not thinking about that really at all, if we're saying this, this is everything to do with ritual. Yes. It, it totally clarifies. I should say, by the way, in modern Judaism, uh, ritual purity and impurity does not exist anymore. Uh, oh, okay. That this is a concept that exists only within a world that has a temple in Jerusalem. And uh, why is that? Why why does it no longer exist? Well, the the fundamental idea of purity is that it is really about fitness to enter into holy spaces. Okay. Uh, so if you are ritually pure you can enter into the temple's sanctum, right? Of course, the way to become ritually pure is to enter into a mikvah, into a ritual bath. This is where baptism comes from, right? Uh, I'd like to say that John the Baptist was actually Yoni the mikvah man. Uh, (laughs) uh, But the idea here is fitness to enter into holy spaces. Uh, And that can be true of objects and it can be true of people. Uh, again, sort of look at Leviticus and you'll get a real sense of how this worked. But in a world that doesn't have a temple and Jews haven't had a temple, uh, since the Romans destroyed it in the year 70, uh, in a world without a temple, there's not a place both to, uh, that requires us to be ritually fit. And there's certain rituals involved in becoming pure that require a temple to do in the first place. Uh, so the the short answer is to say that uh, ritual purity is not uh, important to modern Judaism because we don't have a temple, and it's not possible in a modern Jewish world without a temple. And I, I think that makes such an important distinction because for liturgical Christians such as Episcopalians, um, there, there's both uh, high church and low church. So opinions on this differ, but for some people, the altar, the sanctuary, the area around the altar, uh, is an analog for the temple. Hmm. It's a place of purity, uh, not in the same way at all, but, but with this idea that like the, the bread and the wine, when they are blessed are sacraments and, uh, even touching them for some, you know, for some people, um, is a complicated act. Um, but what you're saying is the synagogue is not an analog for the temple. Even the, the tabernacle with the, the scrolls in it isn't thought of in terms of purity in the same way the temple was. To the, the closest we get in Judaism is there's a concept that says the, uh, uh, the altar of the temple, right? The central area of the temple. Yeah. Uh, today is the, uh, dinner table of a family. Ah, okay. So in fact, right on a, on Shabbat, on uh, Friday evening as we're entering into the Jewish Sabbath, uh, we have wine and challah, wine and bread, at the dinner table. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's really the home that becomes the new temple rather than the synagogue. Uh, the synagogue is a, pra- uh, is a place of uh, communal prayer, uh, but it is not a holy space. Okay. That is that is 
an amazing and important difference between our two faves. Um, Interesting. Both deriving from a shared textual tradition of the Hebrew Bible, though. Right. And from a shared meal, really. Yeah. Um, We've just moved our meal into places which we think of as, uh, if not ritually pure, at least appropriate for ritual in a way that we often don't think of the the home as being. Hmm. Um, Okay, so getting back to the oven of Acnai, this oven then uh, that the rabbi is talking about, this would have been a ritual oven of some type. No, this is just a regular oven. Okay. Regular oven, right? This For them, they're dealing with practical concerns. What okay. happens if you've got an oven, and this is something that would happen pretty regularly, I imagine, you've got an oven and somehow it becomes ritually impure, uh, whether it's touched by someone who has impurity or I don't know how an oven would come in contact with a dead body, but that's a classic source of... Uh, uh, ritual impurity, whatever it is, this is a practical issue that uh, these ovens become ritually impure and then you can't use them. So Rebbe Eliezer has come up with this technical innovation. Let's take broken pieces, put sand between them. It'll work great as an oven uh, and it can't become impure. Okay. Okay. So so that's actually the text. Yep. That's actually just the background. We're not even really going to talk about impurity from now on. Okay. Uh, I want to keep going. Sure. Do you want me to read or should you? Uh, we'll trade paragraphs. How's that? Okay. That sounds great. It is taught on that day, Rebbe Eliezer brought forward every imaginable argument, but the sages did not accept any of them. Okay. So what's happening here? Uh, he is trying to convince people that his technical innovation is worthy of their consideration. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. That's, that's my read on this. Uh, uh-huh. sages, by the way, that's sort of the word that we end up using, uh, to refer to general consensus here. Okay. Uh, so there is this concept, maybe not so different from the College of Cardinals voting on a pope and it being God's will, uh, that when the great minds, the great rabbis gather and they vote, that they're able to derive sort of divine purpose here. Huh. Okay. Uh, so what we're being told then is that Rebbe Eliezer makes a great argument and the sages don't care. They vote him down. Right. <laughs> uh Finally, he said to them, if the halakha of religious law is in accordance with me, let this carob tree prove it. And sure enough, the carob tree is immediately uprooted and moved 100 cubits, some say 400 cubits from its place. Uh, I love this, by the way. They, they even argue over how far it is that this miraculous carob tree right. moved, um, which is so very rabbinic. Um, and the rabbis respond. Of course, they look at Rabbi Eliezer. They say... No proof can be brought from a carob tree. So question, is it important that it's a carob tree? Does the type of tree have a significance? Oh, I don't know. You know, I've studied this text dozens of times. I've never asked that question, uh, which, huh. by the way, that's part of the beauty of Chavruta, right? Uh, is your partner brings questions that no one else will. Uh, sure. Is there an importance to it being a carob tree? I don't know. Let's think about that. So carobs, right? One of the sort of essential produce of Israel, one of the the Mm -hmm. classic species. Um, You can eat carobs. They can sustain you. I don't know. I'm I'm sort of... They can make for a really awful chocolate substitute. Oh, I love carobs and I don't like chocolate. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, you know, there we go. Here's another argument for the sake of heaven. Uh, (laughs) Though actually maybe it's not for the sake of heaven because I know that I'm right here and you're wrong. So... uh, 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 yeah, but I would say the sages agree with me. Yeah, uh-huh. um, I think you're probably right here. <laughs> yeah. um, particularly if the sages include my wife. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so so we we have the rabbi or the sages rejecting a miracle, um, or what what one would normally think of as a miracle, and why are they saying no proof can be brought from a carob tree? Uh, you know, I, I, I always sort of like this, right? There's a miracle that happens in front of them. And they say like, what do carob trees know about halakha? What do they know about <laughs> Jewish law? Um, yeah. Okay. So the miracle in some way, uh, doesn't count because it's, it's not an argument. Um, a carob tree cannot argue over Jewish law. Exactly. It's not one of the sages. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, there's something wonderfully absurd about it all, but yeah. Um, Okay. Okay. I think it's your turn. (laughs) Let's build on that absurdity. So the text goes on. And again, he said to them, 
If the halakha agrees with me, let the stream of water prove it. Sure enough, the stream of water flowed backward. No proof can be brought from a stream of water, they rejoined. <laughs> right, so we get more miracles. We get more miracles. Right, right. Okay, so nature does not get to be part of this argument. Hmm, no. No. That's interesting. Um, does, and, and this, this might bring us to a, another general question about understandings of purity. Often, uh, I think, you hear arguments that purity can be derived from nature, right? Something is unpure because it is, quote-unquote, unnatural. Hmm. But this does not really enter into the thinking here at all. No, though, I... I had never thought of it this way before, but one of the ways that you would make something pure if it's become impure or fit if it's become richly unfit is you would immerse it in living waters, uh-huh. right? A, a, a mikvah or a, a baptismal font. Did I say that right? Yes. Um, but actually the, the distinction as I understand it is, right, you can have a baptismal font in the middle of a church, right? Um, yes. And you fill it up with water and it's good to go. Uh, That's right. A mik- Well, you have to blast the water first. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it's not good to go until it's blessed. So a mikvah doesn't require any blessing, uh, but it has to be living natural water. So a stream or a lake or today a modern mikvah, and we have mikvahs, we use them uh, uh, for conversion ceremonies and then also, at least in the uh, uh, Orthodox world, the sort of um, most conservative uh, type of Judaism – women will immerse themselves uh, after they're done menstruating uh, in a uh-huh. mikvah uh, in order to um, sort of have a different kind of ritual purity uh, and, again, enter into physical contact with their partners. Um, so modern mikvahs do exist, and these modern mikvahs have a whole intense engineering around capturing rain and funneling it in naturally without a pump and all these sorts of things so that you truly are immersing in living natural waters. Huh. But... Right, these streams really do know something about purity and impurity. Right, the trees may not have a vote, but shouldn't the water? Right, right. So it's not just another miracle. It's it's um, it feels almost as if they're being kind of unreasonably recalcitrant. Like they're not um, they're not buying it no matter what happens. Yeah, yeah. Right. He okay. tries logic. He tries unrelated miracles. Then there's related miracles. Right. Um, so it's a heightening of his argument, um, but but it's not getting him anywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go on. Yep. Uh, again, he urged, if the halakha agrees with me, let the walls of this house of study prove it. And sure enough, the walls tilted in as if to fall. But Rabbi Joshua rebuked the walls, saying, when disciples of the wise are engaged in a halachic dispute, what right have you to interfere? And in deference to Rabbi Joshua, we are told, they did not fall. And in deference to Rabbi Eliezer, they did not resume their upright position. They are still standing aslant today. <laughs> uh, you get the sense almost that like there was this house and people would point to it and they'd say, ah, that's where the argument happened. It's the, the- <laughs> Right, right. Uh, um, and it is... I, I don't know. It's hilarious. And I, I'm like trying to parse the hilarity, but I think in part, uh, it's uh, now it becomes almost folkloric, right? Oh, like, yeah. here's a story to explain why a wall is slanted. Um, and you almost wonder, like, did the story develop because somebody noticed a tilted wall and was like, how, uh, can, we, how can we explain, explain that? Explain this tilted wall. Yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> exactly. Though as you enter into the greater and greater absurdity, it even, I think, ratches up how absurd it was that they argued earlier as to how far the carob trees moved. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like that's the important piece in this conversation. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Like it's going off on these little tangents. Um, Doesn't matter that they're walls of a house of study. Doesn't matter that they're walls of a house of study. Well, it certainly is becoming, Personal, right? If we start with something that's unrelated and miraculous, and then we get to something that's related and miraculous, now we get something that's very personal, right? The, literally, uh, the walls of study are caving in on them. Uh, yeah. As if to say, no, you are so wrong that we need to end this discussion miraculously on its own. Right. 
Right. So now, so we, we have this further thing. So the sages have been recalcitrant against a natural miracle. They've recalc- been recalcitrant, sorry, recalcitrant against a miracle that has to do with uh, water and therefore is already bringing in uh, ideas of, of purity and, and finding purity again. And now they're recalcitrant against uh, the very project that they're engaged in, in some ways which is the study of the Talmud or, or this argument, this argument for the sake of heaven is, yeah, I, you know, I told you before, I've studied this so many times. I have never, uh, thought about how these miracles change and how they evolve as we go. This is really interesting. Uh, well, you know, this is probably my English majoriness coming out. You know, this is something yeah, that yeah, like, yeah. stories, stories build in this way for a particular reason. Um, no, and I think there's something here to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it is possible, um, for people just to dig their heels in and say, uh, we, we'll even kind of argue against our own process of arguing um, for, you know, for, if, if it seems right, is that in Judaism, does that happen very often or is that, cause I, I can tell you it happens a lot in Christianity. So. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe that's a human failure more than any theological failure. Um, yeah, probably. Right. But they're even, they're putting their own lives at risk. They're saying that I am so right in my truth that I am willing to bring the walls down upon us. Right. Right. And the other the other thing I think to keep in focus is that logistically this argument, which is becoming heated to the point almost of uh, death and self sacrifice, is about an oven, right? Yes. <laughs> like it started such a small thing, yes. and now it is amplified to such a huge degree. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Okay. Um, the stakes and the absurdity keep ratcheting up. Right. Uh, right. So right in what could be uh, higher stakes than this? Well, we'll find out. Uh, yeah, okay. So, again, uh, Rabbi Eliezer said, then said to the sages, if the halakha agrees with me, let it be proved from heaven. Right, okay. So now the streams aren't enough, the uh, uh, walls of the house aren't enough, the carob trees aren't enough. We're bringing God into this. Yeah. <laughs> sure enough, a divine voice, bot call cried out. And that's a, by the way, just a, a, a tangent here, a feminine voice. Ah. Or, a, wow, or a, awesome. a, a female voice, I should say. Did I pronounce it correctly? Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Okay. Okay. A divine voice, a feminine divine voice cried out, why do you dispute with Rabbi Eliezer with whom the Halakha always agrees? Rabbi Joshua stood up and protested, the Torah is not in heaven. Right, which is a, <laughs> a quote from Deuteronomy. We pay no attention to a divine voice because long ago at Mount Sinai, you wrote in your Torah, after the majority must one incline. Uh, right. So, wow. There's something so Jewish about this. Like, what, what does God have to do with any of this? Come on, God. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. In a way, it's almost as if... if the majority, the people, the group mind um, has at least equal status with divinity. I, well, it doesn't seem like equal status. I mean, right? They they just look back at God and they said, "God, you have no standing in this court." <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's something so quintessentially Jewish about this, uh, right? There's uh, there's an old joke. So you, you got to know the word Yiddishkeit. Yiddishkeit means sort of your your Judaism, your Jewish soul, your Jewish thinking, your, these sorts of things. There's a story about a uh, ultra orthodox man who goes to his Rebbe, to sort of his his real spiritual leader. Uh, he's living in the shtetl in the old world, and he goes, Rebbe, I'm having a, a crisis of my Yiddishkeit. And the Rebbe says, Well, what's wrong? And he goes, Well, I don't I don't think I believe in God anymore. And the Rebbe looks back at him and says, Okay, we can talk about that, but what does that have to do with your Yiddishkeit? <laughs> Uh, right, there's something to it yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, kind of spiritually, it's really interesting to me because um, I think Christians, I don't know if this is true of other faiths, but we 
often when we are faced with a seemingly insurmountable problem, um, we have this hope, and we sometimes even say it out loud, that God will somehow tell us what to do or how to resolve the problem. Um, and in fact, we pray for that. We're like, God, I don't know what to do. Tell me what to do. Um, and this story seems to be saying, there's another way to approach this, right? Like, uh, maybe it's not God who is going to tell us what to do, or maybe God will say something and the community will disagree with it, and then you're going to go with the community. Uh, which is just, it, it's it's a very like foreign way of thinking, but I also wonder how it would affect our spiritual lives um, be- if if uh, if we didn't do that um, hmm. for good or for bad. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a it's an open question in my mind. And I love here that they source text back at God. Yeah. Right, like God. No, 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 no. It's you know, it's not so different than if the two of us are arguing over something, right? No, God, read your Deuteronomy. Well, it, it's demanding a kind of consistency of God too. You know, as a parent, uh, you know, and you're a parent, often children are the best ones at calling us out in our inconsistencies, right? Yeah. We'll say something, they'll be like, "But you said before, so and so, right?" And and it's almost it it has a little feeling of that in this moment. Uh-huh, it's like uh-huh. you may be saying this now, God, but back when you were handing down the Torah, you said this other thing. Though, if you look back right at uh, uh, Deuteronomy thirty, where this comes in, the Torah is not in heaven. It, it, right, this is the section where it says, and it's not across the sea that it's so far you can't get to it. And it, it clearly, in its original context, is saying the Torah is not in heaven, as in anyone can understand it. Right. Ah. And interestingly enough, I think in its original context, it's saying, don't worry about these hidden meetings. It's not this obtuse esoteric text. It's right there. It's shot. It's on the surface. You can understand it. The Torah is not in heaven. And so what do the rabbis do? They use a text that's about not needing deeper understandings to say, no, there's this whole different understanding of everything. (laughs) Um, that is amazing. Yep. So, and I, I think this is important. That's not the end of this story. It's not the end of uh, uh, this piece of Talmud. Uh, so uh, uh, let's look at this final paragraph. You want to read it? Sure. Um, Rabbi Nathan, or I think, uh, do you say Rabbi Natan? Natan, but, you know, either way. Okay. Uh, Rabbi Natan met the prophet Elijah and asked him, what did the Holy One do at that moment? Okay, Elijah- so first, I mean, I think we have to uh, pay attention to, uh, we've got another sort of absurd moment here where Elijah, who died, you know, a thousand years before this, or I guess I should say <laughs> lived a thousand years before this, for those who say he didn't die, uh, yeah. is showing up like they're meeting at a bar or something. Right, right. So if you go up to heaven in a chariot, um, you can you can ride the chariot back down to your local TGI Fridays. I, exactly. And actually, both... <laughs> Both of these are sort of techniques uh, that show up throughout the Talmud. Uh, Elijah and the Bat Kol that we saw a moment ago, this divine voice. That sort of when the rabbis have gotten to a place where there is no no escape, uh-huh. uh, where their argument has reached this endpoint, oftentimes we'll have these uh, sort of miraculous intrusions to provide a way out here. That is beautiful. Beautiful beyond words. Uh, yeah, wouldn't, okay. wouldn't that be nice and helpful in our own debates, right? <laughs> yeah, I would. I would love to grab uh, a prophet and and have him come in on my side. Um, but what is also funny about that is they're calling upon the prophet to be on their side, but the the holy one <laughs> was not all that important. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the last section. Exactly. Um, Okay. All right. So Rabbi Natan met the prophet Elijah and asked him, what did the Holy One do at that moment? Elijah replied, he laughed with joy saying, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. I I love this. I love this. And actually you can translate uh, uh, that final word of defeated as being expanded me too. Right. Uh, that my children have expanded my message, which I think goes along with sort of the whole idea here. Uh, right. I mean, I, it's pretty remarkable that they, they have this whole debate. They rely on miracles. Rebbe Eliezer, it doesn't matter if it's logic. It doesn't matter if it's miracles. It doesn't matter if it's God. That ultimately it is sort of 
human initiative and human processes that are the most important. And we get this affirmation at the end that Hmm. says, God agrees with that. Yeah. God agrees with that. And, but, but that said, um, our, our defeats and our failures, can be expansive because I, I guess like the one worry might one one might have is if human initiative is um, all important, um, then one are we putting ourselves in the place of God, or and two what do we do of failure? Right, mm. like if our initiatives matter so much, then do we have any room for failure? Hmm. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing here too is a rejection of a view that says that scripture or revelation is our source of ultimate answers. Ah, uh, right. I mean, it becomes the starting point rather than the source of answers. And in that sense, it's sort of the opposite of what I understand to be uh, the classic Protestant move, which is to return back to, uh, the original source text, uh, without these layers in between. Right, and and this is why Talmud is more important than Torah. Exactly, exactly. And when we were talking about this kind of prior to recording the podcast, you used a pearl metaphor to describe this. Can you lay that on us? Yeah, so before, uh, before really the modern era, the pearl was a classical Jewish symbol. Uh, and it's a symbol because, you know, pearl starts from a grain of sand entering into an oyster. But... Uh, but I don't think any of us would look at a pearl and say, ah, the real value of this pearl is in cutting it open to get the grain of sand back. Uh, the pearl is dependent upon these layers upon layers that are built on that grain of sand. And that's really a Jewish view of text. I mean, particularly when you look at uh, uh, sort of a view like we have here with the oven, that the whole point of scripture, the whole point of revelation, uh, the whole point of God entering into the universe is to start a process, not to end a process. Hmm. Right? Uh, I, I have a teacher in Jerusalem, Micha Goodman, who likes to say that the Bible is the story of how we're not supposed to live. Wow. Right? We think of it as this sort of aspirational image, but the yeah. Bible's full of failure, right? Whether it's familial dysfunction or you start getting into the stories of the prophets or uh, right, look at the kings. It's, it's full of right. the mistakes we shouldn't make again. Right. So it's the story of how we're not supposed to live because it's it's really just the beginning. It, exactly. Exactly. Um, so it almost creates a process where it's the sanctification of history and learning historical lessons. Uh-huh. Does that mean that, you know, like when we think about how to be um, holy in the world, um, if that's even a concept, that's all that useful in Judaism. It is in Christianity. Um, we often don't think of that in terms of, um, you know, what you were just saying, uh, starting at a good starting point and then going forward and, and letting experience inform us as we go. We often think of it as, at least in Christianity, of getting back to a kind of perfection that we had somehow lost. Now, and I should say that, uh, and this is part to me of the beauty of Judaism, that this is not the only view. Right. Uh, that sort of, I, you know, I, I would put the story of the oven of Achnai as being fundamentally a progressive story. Uh, uh-huh. Right. I, I don't mean that in the sort of contemporary political sense of progressive. I mean, in the sense that it's about process over destination and it is about expansion that tomorrow has the possibility of being better and greater and in that sense, holier than today or yesterday. Uh, But there is an alternative viewpoint in Judaism. Uh, They talk about the decline of generations. And the basic idea is the farther you get from Sinai, uh, the less significant your truth is. Uh, They they sort of view it as a big game of telephone. So the farther you are from the original message, the less reliable of a source you are. And in that sense, I am more reliable than the next generation, but less reliable than my parents' generation. Um, So so that Protestant move of going back to the basics is not entirely foreign to Judaism. 
No, no, though he would never be a return to Torah. Uh, because uh-huh. under this view, you know, if, if I say that I can interpret the meaning of scripture, they, this view, this, this conservative reactionary view would say, no, absolutely not. Previous generations were closer to revelation and therefore they have a greater right to interpret than I do. So I can't overrule their interpretations. Ah, Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Because no matter your stream of Judaism, you still have a view of process. Uh, Whether or not that process is leading to greater truth or diminishing truth is the question. Okay. Well, I I have a feeling we're going to be asking these questions and many more over the next uh, months. And and the what we've done today is we've raised a series of topics, questions, differences that I think we'll be coming back to again and again and again. Mm. Um, I want to thank you for your time today, Daniel. This has been really great. Oh, and thank you. Yeah, I've had a lot of fun. I'm really excited for the future. Um, I will say to our to our what will hopefully be loyal audience that Lost in the Wilderness is produced by both you, Daniel Bogard, and me, Carl Stevens, and is made possible by Christ Church Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Uh, it is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. And Daniel, is there a place where people can find you online? I So I, you're certainly uh, welcome to find me on Facebook. Uh, um, but uh, check out nojokeproject.org, which is a documentary that I was a part of. Okay. And I can be found at prayerbookart.com. All right. Well, I will talk to you next week. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I guess if I can put one more plug in, you should definitely sure. like the uh, uh, Exodus Project's uh, Facebook page. Uh, yes, make sure you to stay up to date with us. And we're going to have a series of videos, too, hopefully, that will go out on there. Uh, and we'd love to hear from people if there are topics or ideas that you encounter in your own study uh, that you'd like to hear us explore. Please let us know. Absolutely. And and if, if people can do uh, – Havruta study on Facebook. That would be that'd be bringing this into a whole new era. Yeah, absolutely. Let us know how it goes. Okay. Thank you very much, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Happy Havruting. <laughs>